If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Titus chapter 2. Book of Titus chapter 2. Today we continue our study in Paul's letter to Titus. We've seen the occasion and purpose of this letter, and if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, it spelled out, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What we've seen up to this point might be seen as membership rules and regulations for some sort of social club or group. That is, secular organizations rather than a church or a congregation. So consider the qualifications for leadership, which are mentioned in chapter 1. It seems that Paul and others have chosen two titles for leaders in the churches and the congregations. Elders, presbyteroi is the Greek word, and overseers, episkopoi, I think these are interchangeable. But they are more than simply titles. They are descriptive of the work that these men are to do or their qualifications. Elders indicate maturity and overseers points to managerial ability. So these are the leaders of these groups. And how do you choose the leaders for your groups? Uh, Well, there are certain qualifications, but all of the qualifications reflect outward behavior, outward observable behavior. In his private life, he is to be faithful, a faithful husband to one wife. He is a man whose children are those who believe they're not open to the charge of being out of control or wild, disobedient. In his public life, his observable behavior and his dealing with others, we are given a list of negatives. He's not to be overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. On the positive side, he must be hospitable, he must love what is good, be self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And as I've mentioned, in both lists, the, the private list and the public, the word blameless shows up. He is to be blameless. But again, this is observable outward behavior. Now, we are also told, or Paul tells Titus, there are certain things that disqualify someone from being in leadership. I mean, how do you know who should be an elder or an overseer? Well, if they are rebellious, if they're all talk, and that talk is deceptive by nature, if they teach for the sake of dishonest gain, both their minds and their hearts have been corrupted, yeah, they are not supposed to be leaders. So this is what Paul says about leadership. What about the membership? Is anything expected? If you're part of this group, is anything expected of you? Well, yes, and as with leadership, it also has to do with outward behavior. The five categories of human society are mentioned. Um, We have the older men. And as I mentioned uh, last week, Philo uses this word to describe men over the age of 60. And these men who are members of the group, their qualities or qualifications are very similar to the elders because they, in fact, are the pool from which elders are drawn. They're to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in endurance. So I mentioned temperate usually is thought of in terms of alcohol, using alcohol. But I think Paul is speaking more in terms of being free from any type of excess, 
uh, any rashness, that they are in fact self-controlled, worthy of respect and self-controlled. And by the way, these two qualifications we find throughout pagan writings, that these are the qualities that are to be admired. This is the way a person is supposed to behave. So again, we're still not, it isn't clear that we're talking about a religious group as such. It simply seems to be some type of social group. Then we are told that the older women who are members, um, and again, Philo used this to describe women over the age of 60, they are to be reverent in the way that they live. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, and it is used in literature of the day to indicate the acting of a woman as a priestess. Um, I think what Paul intends is that the demeanor of the older women who are members of these groups is to be like that of temple service. So now we're beginning to get some hints that in fact this might be some type of religious organization, but not much more than that. They are not to be slanderers, that is, they're not to be gossipers. They're not to be addicted to much wine. This is quite different than the prevailing culture, which really admired older men and older women who could hold their liquor. Uh, No, they are not to be addicted to much wine. Then we are told of the behavior of younger female members. They're to be taught by the older women who are members. They are to teach the younger women uh, that they are to love their husbands and children. They are to be self-controlled. There's that word again. They are to be pure, busy at home. They are to be kind and subject to their husbands. Then we come to the fourth group, the young men. Only one quality is mentioned here. And I'm sure you can guess what it is because it's been mentioned twice already. They are to be self-controlled. Their lives are to be marked by self-control. And then at the end, suddenly we begin to get a feeling that this group or these groups are not like the other groups because Paul talks about slaves. Slaves are sort of the bottom of society. Uh, They're not free people. Um, They are under the control of others. And yet Paul tells Titus... They are to be parts of this group, but there are also certain qualifications that are to mark them. If you look at verse 9 of chapter 2, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Apart from slaves being a part of the group, we have a sense here that these groups might, in fact, be something different, somewhat different. Yeah, we've had religious language sort of sprinkled throughout the passage, beginning in chapter 1 and now through uh, much of chapter 2, that an overseer is to be entrusted with God's work. Okay, that sounds kind of religious. He must be holy and disciplined. But then also the false, the the, the people who cannot be elders, these false teachers, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Now we have something very explicit. So that in every way, talking about the slaves, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. We'll come back to this in a bit. At the beginning of this section, we read something that might allow us to think that, in fact, that this is still some type of social organization. 
Look at verse number one of chapter two. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, when I say doctrine, what comes to mind for you? I think for most people, it's theology, you know, theological propositions. But in fact, if you look up doctrine in the dictionary, it usually deals with, yes, principles, but not necessarily religious principles. So you have political doctrines, uh, things like that. Um, what Paul is talking about, however, as we saw last week, is behavior. He's talking about behavior. For him, doctrine or theology was not some abstract concept. From 1 Timothy 1, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So for Paul, what is contrary to sound doctrine is bad behavior. Again, we would think, no, 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 you know, this person is you know, of this particular school of thought. No, Paul's thinking in terms of behavior. Uh, lawbreakers, rebels, ungodly, sinful, those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, adulterers, perverts, slave traders, goes on and on. And I think we would agree with this list. These are not people we want to hang out with. These are not people we want to be around with. But I think we would see these qualities more almost in terms of law, you know, criminal. The people who are murderers are criminals. Or we might see it in terms of political uh, positions. Somebody who is a lawbreaker, someone who stands against the state, might be seen in political terms. Um, so yeah, we don't want these people to be in our organization. And when Paul tells Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, they're like, yes, we want people in our group to be well-behaved people. And if, in fact, the book of Titus were to end after verse number one of chapter two, we might, we might have reason to think that Paul is just talking about you know, nice people who get together and they, they meet certain standards and um, they have good behavior and these are people you'd want to hang out with. Um, this is a group that you'd want to be a part of. But the book doesn't end there. It continues. And we will look today beginning at verse number 11. And now suddenly the picture changes almost entirely depending on their point of view. Look at verse number 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. What we find in these verses is the basis for these organizations, these groups, these churches. Um, 
the foundation, if you wish, for them. And it isn't because you meet certain qualities. It is because of the grace of God and what he has done. As we look at these verses, keep in mind, I think, that what Paul does very subtly is to speak of what God has done for us past, present, and future. That is God's salvation for us. Verse number 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The section begins with for or because. Explains why God's people should live lives as spelled out in the previous passage. The older men, the older women, the the younger women, the young men and slaves. Why they are to live this way. It isn't simply, well, because you're part of this group. And that's the way people, members in this group, this is the way you're supposed to act. It is because of what God has done. The subject of verses 11 to 14, which in Greek is actually one sentence, is the grace of God. This is, this is what it's all about, because of what God has done. Why should the teaching of God, our Savior, be attractive? The slaves are told that they're supposed to act in a particular way. Don't talk back to your master. Be trustworthy. All these kind of things. Why are we to make the gospel attractive? Because the grace of God has appeared. This is the past portion of the picture, if you wish. That in the past, God sent his son. God has done this. In sending his son, God has revealed salvation graciously offered to all. This word appeared will show up again. It will appear again, if you wish. And in Greek, the word is epiphania. Epiphany for us. It's where suddenly the light turns on, if you wish. In pagan literature of the period, um, epiphania is a visible manifestation of a hidden deity. That suddenly a deity appears himself or herself, and makes themselves known. And they either do it by a personal appearance or by some miraculous or supernatural act on their part. And so I think we could go with that. We could say, yes, that the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, is the epiphany. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. But there's another epiphany, and that is when God opened our eyes when he came into our lives individually and showed us the truth of his gospel. Titus is on Crete. Paul had preached in Crete. These people were pagans and now they've come to faith in Christ. If you wish, an epiphany has occurred in their lives and they are now the people of God. And the result is, because of God's grace, in revealing himself through Jesus and revealing himself to the people of Crete, they are now the people of God. And now they're part of the congregation. So it's not just a social group. It is a group that has come into existence because God is so gracious and merciful. Verse 12. This is the present part of the picture, if you wish. It teaches us, present tense, To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. If Paul's intent in this section was to present sort of a, a creed, an apostle's creed, if you wish, or a theological statement, verse 14 would come after 11. You'd go from verse 11 to verse 14, and in fact would fit. For the grace of God that, that brings salvation has appeared to all men, who gave himself to redeem us all uh, from all wickedness 
and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. But that's not what Paul does, because that's not his focus. The focus is, in fact, Christian behavior. And it is the grace of God that has made us God's people, and it is his grace which teaches us how we are supposed to act. So all the qualities we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2 up to this point isn't simply something we do on our own. And I think that's important because we will come up again to the word self-control and if, if we're not careful, we will think it's sort of a, you know, just sort of hang on and control yourself rather than realizing it is the grace of God in our lives. So the grace of God teaches us negatively to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We're to live a particular way, and that means we just can't do whatever we want. There are certain things, in fact, which we are to say no to. And again, not because we want to join the group. You know, if you want to be a member, you can't be doing those things. That may be true, but that's not why you become a part of God's people. It is because of the grace of God, which, again, is fleshed out in verse number 14. But it's not all negative. The positive is it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Again, the word self-control. We've heard it in verse two, verses 2, 5, and 6 of chapter 2. We also saw it in chapter uh, 1, verse number 7, when speaking of overseers. If we're not careful, we think of self-control, I certainly do, as a question of mind over matter. Um, I don't think that's what Paul necessarily has in mind. Rather, it is sensible thinking. That is to say, you think before you do. You think before you say. There is this aspect of control, of sensible living. If you think about it, our actions are to be the result of thought. We are to think about things before we do them. And because of what the grace of God teaches us, there are certain things that we say, no, I'm not going to do that. I should not do that. On the other hand, there are certain things that I am supposed to do. Um, An older woman in the congregation is to teach younger women how they are to love their husbands and their children. And it goes on. Rather than simply being swept along by our passions and doing whatever we feel like at a given moment, we are to be sensible, we are to live upright lives and godly lives. And when exactly are we to live these lives? In the present age, as Paul puts it. As in right now. The grace of God which has appeared to us in the past teaches us in the present how we are to live in the present. It is worth noting in this a side note that the three qualities that are mentioned self-controlled upright and godly are actually three of the four virtues of Platonism and Stoicism these are pagan uh, philosophies I hesitate there because whenever you say philosophy people think oh not religious not religion when in fact Platonism and Stoicism were in fact religious schools of thought so we might again think oh this is just a social group No, no, no. Even if it were a platonic group or a group of Stoics, that's still religious. There are certain qualities. But no, this isn't Platonism. This isn't Stoicism. This is the result of God's grace in the past and in the present. But there's another aspect. We see this in verse number 13. The future. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how long am I to live a self-controlled life? 
an upright life, a godly life, until the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the appearing of God's grace in the past, in the person of Jesus, and in our lives individually, directs us in the present how we are supposed to live. We are to live our lives until, we're waiting until the future appearing, and there's that word again, epiphany, This is the blessed hope when Jesus will come back. So the grace of God is in the past, it's in the present, and it's in the future as well. In between, we are to live by God's grace as those to whom Jesus will appear one day. This is where verse 14 is critical. Look at verse 14. This is, this is the basis for our behavior, what Jesus has done, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus gave himself. And let's not just gloss over that. That's, you know, we've heard it so many times before. As Paul told the Galatians, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Jesus gave himself, he died, to redeem us from all wickedness, to rescue us from all wickedness. Since we have been rescued, then we are to live lives as those who are pure. He is purified as a people for his very own. It's quite amazing when you think of it. But there's something more. We shouldn't simply think that Jesus came and died for our sins and we, we ask for forgiveness and he forgives us and then we can go on our merry way. We are to be eager to do what is good. This one might see as a contrast to being self-controlled, upright and godly. If you think of self-control as just sort of hanging on for dear life, then the last part of verse 14 won't compute for you. But in fact, it isn't simply not doing things. But it is, in fact, doing what is good. And more than that, being eager to do what is good. Right behavior, which has been the focus of this letter all along. Verse 15. Now a personal note to Titus. These then are the things you should teach. Oh, you mean the sound doctrine back in verse number one? Yeah, these are the things to teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Four actions here. He is to teach these things. He is to encourage people to do these things. He is to rebuke them when they don't with all authority. And he is not to let anyone despise you. In Timothy's, in the letter to Timothy, Paul says, don't let anyone despise you. But the issue there was age. That Timothy actually was in his 30s, probably mid-30s. But that was still considered young by the older men, the elders. And Paul said, don't let them despise you because of your youth. Um, that's not mentioned here, and I, so I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is what he would be teaching. The false teachers were getting into very esoteric, abstract, theoretical things, and Titus is saying, this is the way you're supposed to live. This is proper behavior of those who are in leadership and those who are part of the congregation. And he, is, he has authority. After all, Paul has sent him there, so they better listen to what he has to say. Now briefly, I want to look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Um, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, 
to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. I mentioned this last week, but the chapter divisions in the New Testament, the Old Testament as well, uh, are not there originally. I mean, Titus or Paul didn't say, okay, here's now chapter 3. This is something that was actually put into play by Stephen Langdon in 1205. He was a professor in Paris. Um, sometimes the chapter divisions work, like in chapter 2, that's a good place to start. But chapter 3, I think I would have rather if it started with verse number 3. Because, in fact, Titus had been giving instructions that he is to teach, you know, he's to rebuke, and then verse number 1, he is to remind. So it all fits together. So teach, encourage, rebuke, do not let anyone despise, and then remind. Um, Perhaps one of the reasons for putting the chapter division here is that one might think it's a change of thought or a change of focus. Um, You know, I I don't agree. Um, One might say, well, he was talking about how they're to treat their fellow believers, and now here in chapter 3, how you're supposed to treat unbelievers or non-believers. Again, I, I don't agree. I think what Paul wants Titus to make clear is that the call to live self-controlled lives, upright lives, godly lives, is not simply when we get together as God's people in a congregation. It is every aspect of our lives. We are to be upright, we are to be self-controlled when dealing with people who are not self-controlled, who are not upright, who are not God's people. We are to be subject to the political authorities, if you wish, the rulers, and the authorities, we are to be obedient to them. We are to be ready to do whatever is good as members of any given society. Now, this is not an absolute statement, just uh, to digress a bit. Um, as we read in Acts this past week, as we're reading through the Bible, uh, Peter and the apostles told the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. So there, there may come a time when we cannot obey the political authorities. But generally speaking, if we are God's people, if we are controlled, upright, and godly, we will do what we are told to do. Paul told Timothy, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. And then he wrote to the Christians in Rome. This is the capital, the center of the empire. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Paul doesn't get into this when he's writing to Titus, but there is a real sense we get, at least in verse number one, that when we obey those in authority, we are in fact obeying God. We are being self-controlled, upright, and living godly lives. We're to be ready to do whatever is good, which means we're not going to slander anyone. We are going to be peaceful and considerate, and we're to show humility toward all men. We are the church on Melrose, but what does that mean? One might suggest that in part it means that we have qualified leadership, and indeed with our elders, with Dan and Mike, that we have membership who follow certain standards. And I would not disagree. But why? And and how did this happen? 
we need to listen to take to heart what Paul wrote to Titus. And let me read it to you again. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, are his very own, eager to do what is good. We are a congregation because of the grace of God. Because of the grace of God, which appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ centuries ago, but also one day appeared in our lives when he made us his children, that is at work in our lives, though oftentimes we resist that work day after day, Jesus gave himself up to redeem us, to rescue us from all wickedness, to purify us, to be his people, that we would be eager to do what is good. But we need to ask ourselves, is that who we truly are? So I mentioned the word epiphany shows up several times in this passage. And I think the temptation is to make it about what Jesus did centuries ago. And we're looking ahead to the epiphany when he will come back. But there was that epiphany when he came into our lives. But for many of us, we've been Christians, not for a few years, but for decades. And we may have forgotten that initial epiphany. It's something now that you sort of just take for granted. But the fact is, the grace of God at one time in the past appeared in our lives. And from that point on, we were the children of God. And God, by his spirit, has been working in our lives. But we may have forgotten. We may have forgotten. That's one of the reasons why we meet every Sunday, to remind each other. You remember? God's grace appeared to you. And because of that, you're supposed to live this particular way. So the qualities and the qualifications, this isn't just membership stuff. This is day to day. This is how we are to live our lives as the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father... We are grateful for your grace, and yet we confess that oftentimes it has gotten old, at least in our thinking. We have forgotten that first time you opened our eyes and we saw the truth of who you are, the gift of your Son, the love with which you've loved us since before the world was created. And now it's just something we take for granted even something that we get tired of saying thank you for. But on this Thanksgiving Sunday, by your spirit in a particular way, may we be reminded of your grace in the past, in the present, in the future. But particularly how you came into our lives one day, opened our eyes, and made us your children. You adopted us, and now we are yours forever.
And because of what Jesus has done, we are to live a particular way. We are to say no to ungodliness and wickedness. We're to live upright lives. We are to be eager to do what is good. It isn't a question of being nice. Of being nice to other people. But of living as Jesus would live. Reflecting his love to those around us. Even to those who are not like us. To those who are non-believers. To those who don't say no to ungodliness. Who are driven by their passions. And frankly are just not very nice people. But even when we hated you, you loved us and gave your son for us. May we not forget that. May your spirit in the coming days remind us from time to time of what we've heard this day. We pray for those that are struggling with health, for Gia and others. We thank you for the new life among us, for Georgette, be with the Green Holtz. We're thankful that her mom and dad are able to be with them for this time. Give them strength. As we have seen this day, we have so much to be thankful for. And may we always remember. As we leave this place today, may your spirit and grace go with us. I pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.